Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today I want to talk about what I have dubbed change theology, or maybe even the courage to change. And this is going to be a deep dive reflection on the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. I sometimes when I'm speaking in local churches, we'll ask folks gathered, what do you imagine if you didn't know, if you don't know, like what do you think was the first thing that Jesus preached about? Well, if you know scripture, it may be surprising because you just think of all the things that the Son of God might have said first. Isn't it interesting that when he began preaching, Matthew 4.17 and then Mark 1.15 record Jesus saying this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew's gospel, this is the only message that Jesus actually is said to have preached. You know, you usually think of the Sermon on the Mount, but there, that's actually Jesus' teaching. So, what's going on here? Well, when you look at Matthew's gospel... And students of Matthew's gospel typically consider 4.17, which actually begins from that, from this time on, Jesus began to preach as the major heading of the middle section of Matthew's gospel, which goes from 4.17 to 16.20. And it's a description, it's the heading for Jesus's public ministry. And what did Jesus do in his public ministry? He announced the kingdom. In fact, when we think about gospel, what does gospel mean? It's the good news about the kingdom. More about that in a minute. Now, it's interesting in Matthew's gospel that the last section where Jesus is crucified and raised from the dead, that section runs from 1621 to 2820. It also starts from this time on, Jesus began. So, to get back to 417, what's the meaning of Jesus' sermon, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, or at hand? How does it function as a heading for Jesus' ministry, and why does Jesus begin his ministry in this fashion? Again, I don't have time today to answer all of those questions exhaustively, but we can begin by breaking down Jesus' message into pieces. First, Jesus uses the word repent. And that's the central exhortation that Jesus makes. Repent. Repentance means changing or turning around. It's a radical about face in one's life. Sometimes you'll hear people say it's to change one's mind. That's looking at the etymology of the Greek word metanoia. Another way to think about repentance is to recognize that the Greek word is actually a translation of the Hebrew verb shuv, which means return or turn around. So regardless, it's ultimately about an about face, a radical about face where we either align or we realign with God. And that's the my preferred translation. Yeah, I have a whole book in which I argue that the, the, the better way of thinking about repentance is to think about it as an initial alignment with God or an ongoing realignment with the values, the ethic of Jesus' kingdom. And one of the mistakes we can make is we think that repentance is a one-time event. 
You don't just repent and be saved. Because oftentimes we associate repentance with a person's conversion experience. That's certainly true. Repentance is part of coming and receiving the gospel. But it misses some of the force of this text because this text, 417, is not exhorting a one-time repentance or just an alignment. Because in fact, if you look at it carefully and if you're able to read the Greek language, the Greek verb in this case is in the present aspect, which means with an imperative, this is a command, a present tense command isn't just a one-time command, it's an ongoing type of a thing. So a better way to translate this would be to be repenting or to repent continuously. Uh, this is the reason why I've opted in my own work to use the, fra the, use the idea of realign with the re in parentheses. And if, you, if you're watching this on video, I'll write this up on, on my board. And I do this on purpose. The re is the ongoing part. The align is the one-time thing. So in Greek, the idea here, and the people that would have heard Jesus preaching would have understood that repentance is not just a one-time act or a precondition for salvation, but instead repentance or realignment is a way of life for a follower of Jesus. We're continuing to grow, and God is going to have to continue to chip away at all the parts of our lives that aren't in full alignment with God's character and the values of his kingdom. What's also interesting in Jesus' sermon, this is what makes it so powerful, is that Jesus doesn't give an object or content about what one needs to repent of. And I think that is intentional, and, and that carries two implications at least. First, it means when Jesus says repent, it's comprehensive. It's all of us has to repent, not just some pet thing, not what your neighbor does. All of us to in total need to realign. And secondly, I think it provides us an insight into how to read the Bible itself, because what it means to repent can only be discovered in this in Matthew in the case of Matthew's gospel by reading Matthew's gospel. In other words, when we read the text and we see the kind of life that Jesus lived and calls his followers to live and the sorts of things that Jesus did, we need to model ourselves on those and realign our lives whenever our lives are not in alignment with the way of Jesus, the ethic of the kingdom. So that's repent. So, but what's the kingdom of heaven? Now, <clears throat> instead of giving, again, specific directions on repenting, Jesus instead gives a single rationale for what's going on here. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The phrase kingdom of heaven is synonymous with what we see in the other gospels in Mark and Luke and John, kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven is, is, is distinctive to Matthew, and Matthew routinely uses indirect ways for referring to God, and many scholars attribute that to the idea that Matthew is writing the Jewish Christian audience, a Jewish Christian audience, which would have been used to such efforts to avoid taking God's name in vain per the Ten Commandments. In other words, they avoided overt references to God and instead kingdom of heaven. 
Second, kingdom may be translated better as reign. So it's a dynamic word, not simply a place. It's a dynamic term uh, that isn't just talking about a place, but instead it's the active realm. It's the sphere in which God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, as the more familiar language of the Lord's Prayer tells us. The power in the phrase kingdom of heaven comes as one attempts to flesh out and or define what the actual ethos or way of life implicit is. The phrase kingdom of heaven begs at least two questions. What sort of king and what sort of kingdom? This would be the burning question for Jesus' hearers, because when you heard kingdom of heaven, that's like a political term. And they were all too well acquainted in the first century with power, kings, and kingdoms of this world, in particular, the power of Rome. Well, the gospel answers both of these questions in due course. God is, of course, the king, the true king, but Jesus is portrayed as the regent. That is, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is the... Um, human representative who comes to inaugurate the eternal reign of God. Now, of course, we know that Jesus wasn't just human but divine, but he is the Messiah, the long-awaited human representative who's going to reconstitute God's reign in the world. So let me highlight two elements of kingdom. First, what kind of king is represented here? Well, Jesus came to bring salvation. That is reported from the beginning of the gospel. From the report of his birth to his death, the mission of Jesus was, as we see in 121, his name will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the fun part is, who are his people? And that's where the book gets uh, interesting, and we're going to talk about boundary stretching. And that's the second thing. Jesus expanded the reach of God's grace. And by expanding, I'm by no means suggesting that somehow God was previously limited, but instead I'm talking about that Jesus incarnated and modeled for God's people the necessity of moving to a missional engagement model for ministry. It was no longer waiting for people to come like in the Old Testament, with few exceptions, namely Jonah being the most, the clearest example, the Old Testament envisions people coming to Israel. How many of our churches today basically think it's about, come? let's get people to come to church as a missiological practice? In other words, in the Old Testament, the nations were invited to come to Israel. Now, again, there's certain oracles in Isaiah that look to it going to the ends of the earth. And again, we can look to Jonah, but those are the exceptions that point to the reality of the essential come-to practice in ancient Israel. In contrast, the, mo the mode that Jesus models was go. In fact, if you get don't get anything out of this particular podcast, it's worth asking ourselves, is my community of faith more like Old Testament Israel waiting for people to come to me, or is it more like the New Testament vision that Jesus inaugurates where Jesus goes and seeks out lost people in order to bring them into God's fold? 
After his resurrection, Jesus makes this explicit, where in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he says, All authority has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations. It's about going. What sort of ethic is found in the kingdom then? It's one that subverts the power structures of Jesus' day and it invites the outsider to the table. And we would do well to listen in anew to Jesus' critique. Let's just look at two passages from Matthew and what they say about the culture of God's kingdom. First, I'm going to read the Beatitudes. And this is a familiar text, but just listen to this. And, think, and listen to how countercultural it is in contrast to what we think about who's blessed or about power. Jesus began to teach, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, when you listen to that, notice how Jesus subverts power structures by reversing the expectation for those who will be blessed. You know, we in, you know, in our day, you can think even back to Benjamin Franklin's advice, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, wise. In Jesus' kingdom, it's not the healthy, wealthy, and wise who are blessed. Again, those aren't bad things, but notice how Jesus names marginalized, downtrodden, excluded persons and calls them blessed. Now, again, Scripture's not glorifying a marginalized life, but instead Jesus is emphasizing that, that it's those people who are in, find themselves in, in a marginalized position that are often the most open to God's grace. And here's the key thing, because they're desperate for what only God can provide them. Many of us, at some level, God is almost like a hobby because we already have an abundance. So we want to listen to that. Now, Jesus also elevates an ethic of love. And Matthew 22, 37 to 38, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, well, the ethic of the kingdom is it's, for those who are desperate for what only God can do. And it looks like love for God, love for neighbor, those two great commandments that go all the way back to the Torah. Those, those two commandments are found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And Jesus really emphasizes the neighbor materials in the gospel. So like if you go back to Matthew 5, Jesus even says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus even challenges our conception of what love for neighbor looks like to include even our enemies. So that's what the kingdom of heaven is about. 
What about this idea of is near? This is tricky sometimes. Uh, the verb that's the verb here is near, has come near, is provocative. It's in Greek in the perfect tense, and I know most of you who are listening don't know Greek, but just bear with me. The Greek perfect carries the idea of a completed action that has ongoing effects into the present and the future. In other words, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has come near, he's declaring that God's kingdom has indeed broken into our world. So it's not just the future that we're waiting for, it's the future is now, right? And it's still to come. Sometimes you hear, you'll hear the language, it's the already here and still not yet. We're waiting for the full consummation, but the kingdom has broken into our world wherever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus demonstrates that. How? It's through his ministry, right? He tangibly signifies, demonstrates that God's kingdom is here. How did he do that? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out devils. He proclaimed the good news. He provided evidence that God's kingdom was here, but we have to be careful because there's still a tension. In the person of Jesus, God is brought near his end time salvation, but at the same time, the present age remains as well. And so right now we live in a time of overlap between the present age and that future reign of God. That's where the language of already and not yet comes in. In other words, Jesus inaugurated the reign of God through his life, death, and resurrection, but the full consummation awaits the new creation. God's kingdom is present now, wherever, whenever God's will is done, but there still remains a day in which God will usher in the eternal reign and bring an end to the present age. That's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The very fact, however, that Jesus is announcing the reign of God in His person is reason enough for responding to His call for conversion. Because when Jesus says repent, what He's doing is inviting us to something bigger than ourselves. He's inviting us to participate in the future in our lives now. Anyone who desires to be part of the world as God intended it, their ears should have perked up and they would have taken notice. In fact, from our perspective, this this is this gets at the missiological or missional point of this whole text. Jesus' proclamation at its core is a call to conversion. The essence of that is a realignment, a repentance. And God is calling everyone that, from the devoutly religious who need to continually realign to the most hardened sinner who needs to align for the first time. And so to the religious, Jesus is proclaiming, align your beliefs and practices to what God is doing through Jesus. To those on the outside, Jesus is issuing this invitation, come and join this new community that God's raising up in our times. And that's still the call today. So what, what is this community? Now notice, what's the response? The, the only response we have in the text to what it means to repent is that Jesus creates a missional community. In verses 18 to 22, it says, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
So what does Jesus do in this text? If his first public action was to proclaim the message of the kingdom, his second one is to call to himself disciples. This suggests that to repent involves entering into the community of Jesus' disciples. It, become, it means become Jesus' disciple. What's the mark? It's easy. It's following Jesus. When you follow Jesus, that's code language for discipleship. It means becoming like Jesus. But let's notice a couple of things that are here. Discipleship's initiated by Jesus. It's obvious here, but it's profound. Jesus actually calls two sets of brothers to follow him. It's Jesus and not the brothers who initiate the relationship. Throughout the gospel, and this is good news for us, Jesus is portrayed on the move. God, through Jesus, is actively seeking out those who will respond to his invitation. And this has implications for our ministry today. This text suggests that it is God and not we who are seeking out new disciples. So even when Jesus sends out the, uh, the 11 after the resurrection, Judas obviously is dead, so there's only 11 disciples. In the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, Jesus says, and lo, I'll be with you always. So Jesus is actually the one leading us always. We never go anywhere, never talk to any person that Jesus, through his grace, isn't already present. So discipleship's initiated by Jesus. Second, discipleship involves following Jesus. Becoming a disciple of Jesus implies an authentic relationship. It's not a matter of just giving intellectual assent to some propositions. It's a commitment to the person of Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, follow language is used of those who become disciples. Just for example, you can look at verse nine, chapter 9, verse 9, chapter 16, 24, and there's lots of other examples. Just do a concordant search for follow and see how Matthew uses that language. And so this is a personal relationship, but it's much more radical than the domesticated version that we often peddle in our day. Following Jesus involves an allegiance to Jesus in which the follower turns away from a life of self-centeredness, embraces the cross as a central vocation and the chief metaphor of the Christian life, and walks moment by moment in the footsteps of Jesus. When the brothers follow Jesus, they commit themselves to the imitation of Jesus, as Jesus teaches them to fish for people. Jesus becomes their rabbi, and his actions, habits, attitudes become theirs. Third thing about this new community, discipleship involves participation in the mission of Jesus. As my mentor Alex McManus taught me, and I've, I say this wherever I teach, the gospel comes to us on its way to someone else. The gospel comes to us on its way to some place else. And so, Jesus invites Simon, Andrew, James to follow him, and he promises to transform them from fishermen to fishers of men and women. In other words, from the very moment that they're called to follow Jesus, the purpose of this following is missional. Friends, there's no true discipleship apart from active participation in the mission of God. That's what making disciples means. The chief purpose of the new community is, a, is, is, is the mission of God. Too often in our context, you know, discipleship just means Christian education or maybe accountability groups or spiritual formation. All of those things are good. And everybody that listens to this channel knows that I love deep spiritual formation. But it's for missional spiritual formation. All of us 
It's not a gift to be involved in evangelism. It's a value that's part of being a disciple. Fourth, discipleship involves the instantaneous participation in mission. There's never a moment when Jesus' disciples aren't on mission. He leads them out from the very beginning. Look at 417 all the way through 422. Then Jesus immediately goes out and begins to train them hands-on. And then he sends them out 935 to 11.1 to fish. Fifth, discipleship involves a radical change of allegiance with, a, with, and with cost, right? It's not a risk-free proposition. It's bold and daring. It's a radical life makeover. Our lives don't look the same after we follow Jesus than before we follow Jesus. Simon and Andrew leave their nets. That was their livelihood. These were not just poor fishermen. These were entrepreneurs, and they're leaving their means of making a living, their capital investments. They're leaving behind. James and John leave nets and a boat and their dad points to two key areas that get affected by this, um, economics and our family. This isn't an anti-business message, and this isn't an anti-family message, but it's all about an allegiance. And there's a higher allegiance to Jesus than anything else. Then, it's implicit here, but this is really important. Discipleship involves community. We've been talking about community. But Jesus calls disciples to form a new community for the people of God. There's no solitary Christians. We need each other. We live and grow in community with others. We do mission with others. And it's poignant to observe that there was never a moment when there was only one follower of Jesus. Jesus calls a couple of brothers. So how does all this specifically relate to Jesus' call to realign continually? As I I close, the need to change, that's what we're talking about when we talk about realigning. We're talking about change, a change theology. And it takes courage to change. So it's not a claim for some relative ethic. Instead, it simply recognizes the dynamic nature of following Jesus and the ongoing need to become more Christ-like. There's always room for growth, but our new life can be summarized in what Jesus says later in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He or she must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. This, ch- this text suggests that an encounter with Jesus puts one at a crossroad between the past and the future, and in the present, under the call of Jesus, we're called to align our lives with the values of the kingdom. This text is a call to change, but rather than serving as a repudiation of life, it's an invitation to true life. It's an invitation to a life that matters, a life that makes a difference, a life the way that God intended for us to live, and indeed, an invitation to a true life. It's an opportunity to live as though God's future, as pictured in Scripture, is true and livable in profound ways in the present. And friends, doesn't our world need men and women who model this? Are you you interested in experiencing this life? It's been a real privilege to share some of these ideas with you. I'll put some resources in the notes you found this episode helpful, would you leave a review? Would you share it with your friends? Would you post it on social media and help to get the word out? If I can answer any questions, feel free to reach out to me, brianrussellphd.com, or you can email me at deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. 
Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope to others.